Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to At the End of the Day, the podcast. I'm Hannah Sun. In every episode, I speak with friends who have stories and experiences that I like to learn from. I also speak with experts when I'm looking for advice. Basically, what I want always is more clarity on what matters most at the end of the day. Just a note that today we will be talking about gender-based violence. Please listen with care. Now, if you're here listening, you may already know about my newsletter. I've been writing it since those dark early days of March 2020 when the WHO declared a global pandemic. I was just trying to process the news every day. And over the last two years, many social problems have become so much more exposed. We can't pretend we don't know anymore. According to a 2020 report from the Canadian Femicide Observatory, a woman or girl is killed every two and a half days in this country. 90% of the time by a man, more than half the time by an intimate partner. Hate crimes are up. I mean, I have seen too many videos of elderly Asian people being viciously assaulted. Some of those videos are from American cities, but Canada, do not be smug. In 2021, research showed that hate crimes against Asian people in Vancouver, for example, went up over 700%. These things happen in public which is why I reached out to Julie Lalonde last fall. After a woman was sexually assaulted on public transit in Philadelphia, there was a ton of social media disbelief. How could other passengers just sit there? That's what people were asking. And why weren't people doing anything? Well, I saw Julie say on Twitter that she is an expert in bystander intervention training. And when I spoke to her for my newsletter, I felt like her advice was maybe the single most useful thing that I'd published to that date. So this is why we're talking to Julie Lalonde today. She is a women's rights advocate and public educator in Ottawa, Canada. She's also the author of Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death and Life of Julie S. Lalonde. She's been teaching bystander intervention for over 10 years. And once you learn it, I guarantee you won't really see things the same way ever again. Here's my conversation with Julie Lalonde. Well, welcome, Julie. It's so nice to see you this morning. Thanks for having me. I wanted to have you on the podcast because I followed your work for years and we connected recently for the newsletter. You told me all about the five D's of intervention and I just found it so powerful. What are the different areas that you cover when you're teaching? I train anyone and everyone over the age of 12 on bystander intervention to end gender-based violence with a particular focus on men's violence against women. So things like sexual assault, intimate partner violence, stalking, street harassment, harassment in the workplace. So a real variety of stuff from working with high school students around not sharing nudes to talking about the complexity of reporting in the workplace when you feel like you're alone or the person harassing you is your boss. And so a real sort of array of different ways in which people can respond to the reality, which is that we have extremely high rates of gender-based violence in this country. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, 
I think that people are continually surprised, actually, by the reality and the numbers uh, when it comes to gender-based violence and also how the pandemic has exacerbated the problem. Absolutely. It is very common for me to speak to Canadian audiences and have them say, yeah, but like, isn't it worse in XYZ countries? So we very much have this idea in Canada that we are the beacon of gender equality in the world and that people should look to us for the way forward when in fact we have absolutely atrocious rates of gender-based violence. So there's a very sort of Canadian identity and denial to that that I think is really important to name. But also I think just recognizing that it's not that easy to intervene in this idea that if you see something, say something is going to solve our problems is incorrect because there's nuance and complexity to human interactions that's very different from I just saw an abandoned suitcase at a train station. Okay, I clearly know who to report it to. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading some numbers in the Globe and Mail recently about how many people report domestic abuse, which of course is way smaller than the reality of the problem. And the numbers just kind of blew my mind because I just looked down the street, like my own street, and I was like, this means that this is happening in the homes around me. And I said that to my husband. I said, we have no clue because people can't talk about this. Or if you even see maybe any signs, your tendency is to ignore it or give people their privacy. Yeah. If people understood the reality of gender-based violence, which has pretty much stayed the same for generations, then they wouldn't be surprised that the rates are through the roof during the pandemic. But still in 2022, people believe that women are the most at risk from strange men in public places, Mm. men they've never met before. And so, of course, the idea that like we're all stuck in our homes, well, then, of course, you won't be experiencing violence. Of course, it's safer for you when we know the home is actually the most dangerous place for most women and for children in particular. The Femicide Observatory has noted that every year of the pandemic has been deadlier than the year before when it comes to femicide in this country. Like women are being killed by men at higher rates during the pandemic than pre-pandemic. And that should be the biggest focus of things like municipal elections, like this should be at the forefront of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And also, when you say there's the myth that a woman needs to be walked home because the outside world is dangerous, then when you get home, you're safe. I think it plays into the kinds of news stories that go viral, like the news story last fall that prompted me to get in touch with you for the newsletter. There was a news story about a woman in Philadelphia riding public transit, and she was sexually assaulted in front of witnesses who didn't do anything. And so this story just captured everyone's attention. And everybody said, wow, how could this happen? And then I saw you on Twitter say, well, yeah, this happens. And I have the tools, I can tell you how to stop this from happening. And I teach this kind of stuff all the time. So maybe we can just start with that new story. Yeah, it really made me think about the Kitty Genevieve story from the 70s that really is the reason why we know about things like the bystander effect. So as the story was told at the time, a woman in New York was raped and killed outside of her apartment building. She had been screaming for help and no one did anything. That's the narrative that was told. That's how the media spun the story. And that's what encouraged researchers to look up the bystander effect, which is when there's a crowd of people around. In theory, there's a crowd of people who can intervene, but everyone kind of looks to each other to be like, are you going to do it? No? Okay. So that absolutely does happen. The bystander effect is real. But the complexity of the Kitty Genevieve story is that people did call the police. But because she was a woman who was experiencing violence, the police did not prioritize the call because they assumed it was just domestic. 
And Kitty Genovese was an out queer woman living with another woman. And so homophobia absolutely played a part in that story. It wasn't just a woman was killed and no one cared. There's nuance and complexity. And just running with the police narrative is really dangerous because the bystander effect is very, very real. But my issue with the way in which we talk about it is it feeds this idea that human beings are selfish by nature. And therefore, what I'm asking people to do is impossible. But in fact, it's not that at all. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of the skepticism that I brought to the story in Philadelphia. And sure enough, it did come out that there were people who tried to intervene, that someone in particular who was filming was trying to collect evidence. They weren't just trying to go viral, that there actually was more empathy shown and that there weren't actually that many people on the train as was originally reported. So yes, let's talk about why people are not stepping up when they witness sexual assault and sexual harassment on public transit. Absolutely. But just buying the police narrative that, see, this is why you need us, because people are just never going to step up and we need to be around. That's the narrative that I find really problematic, because again, it feeds the apathy that, yeah, we are powerless. And so we need the state to step in. And people don't intervene when they witness sexual assault for very different reasons than they don't help someone who tripped and fell on the sidewalk. Like, I don't bring myths and stereotypes to people tripping on the sidewalk, but I absolutely Mm -hmm. bring myths and stereotypes about how a real victim would behave and who is deserving of support. And, you know, only sluts get raped. Like, all of that narrative absolutely hinders my ability to intervene because I don't think you're worthy of help versus helping an elder across the street with some groceries, right? Like, that has a different connotation. And so, again, that nuance has been really talked about over the past few years. And I'm so grateful because I think that's a productive conversation. Yeah. Wow. When you talk about the stereotypes we bring to these kinds of situations of witnessing any kind of sexual harassment or assault, like, wow, it's just a reminder of how much misogyny is baked into everything. On that note, (laughs) listen, (laughs) let's get to the five Ds because I found these tools of intervention to be so powerful to learn from you. So very quickly, can you just outline what are the five Ds of bystander intervention? Yeah, so they are in no particular order. And that's really important. So it's just the way that we sort of talk about them. But they are distract, delegate, document, delay and direct. So those are five concrete tools that people can use when they are witnesses to all kinds of harassment. And that's really, really important to remember is that whether you're talking about Islamophobia, sexual harassment, anti-Asian racism, like all of the nasty stuff that we've seen in particular during the pandemic, those five tools can be used in any one of those contexts. I love that. So let's go through them one by one, okay? And you started with distract. How do you do that? So distract is, I would say, the most popular one in the workshops. It's the one that people really identify with the most. And it's one of two things. So the goal is really to just create a distraction that breaks the contact between the harasser and the target, that allows the target to get away from the situation or to engage with you as a bystander and then ignore the harasser. So that could be quite literally tripping, falling, stumbling, creating some sort of a distraction nearby that draws attention to you or being chatty. So you could approach the person being targeted and ask them a really innocuous question like, hey, I'm looking to get to the Rito Center. Do you know where that is? Or so sorry, my phone died. Do you have the time? Or even things like, oh my God, how are you? Haven't seen you in so long. Like pretending to be friends with someone, pretending to recognize them. Like, hey, aren't you so-and-so? We met at that conference. 
really just making up an excuse that doesn't draw attention to the fact that the person is being harassed. You really want to read like someone who is unaware that they've walked into an awkward situation that you just can't read a room. You're just asking an innocent question. And in doing so, again, you're not entering into a confrontation with anyone. You're just looking like, oh, hey, sorry to bother you, but X, Y, Z. So distract is a really, really great tool that gives you a lot of flexibility depending on the context and also who you are. So as a femme presenting person, I would go up to another sort of femme presenting person and say things like, oh my God, I love your bag. Where is your bag from? Versus my brother, who's a six foot six white man, his approach might be going up to the person who's doing the harassment and saying, hey, dude, sorry to bother you, but I'm really looking for this coffee shop and I'm so lost, you know? So doing something like that, again, recognizing who you are, your identity, how you're perceived, and using that to your advantage to just break the tension in the situation. And you also, when we spoke earlier, you pointed my direction to this viral video of Potato Chip Man on the New York City subway where his kind of way of distracting was literally to just stand in the middle and continue to eat his chips. He didn't really say or do anything besides insert himself. And it did become distracting. Absolutely. So again, like using your physicality to your advantage. In the clip that went viral, it happened in a New York subway. This was a woman of color who had been followed onto the train by a guy who was then continuing to try to hit on her and was just being really, really aggressive and then shoved her and ended up turning into a physical altercation. And then out of nowhere, out of the frame, this big strapping white guy just kind of moseys over doesn't even make eye contact with anyone, doesn't even say anything. He's just eating his bag of Doritos like he literally has zero cares in the world. But in doing <laughs> that, he inserts himself between the two people, so literally blocks the view from the harasser to the target. And then people realize, oh, okay, now I can step in. And so someone helps the woman and someone else, you know, confronts the harasser. And it all started because somebody literally just shuffled two feet over and kept eating mm -hmm. chips. Like simple, simple stuff that doesn't make it clear that you're intervening, but still makes a world of difference. Mm -hmm. It's like the way that when you're on public transit, if you're too shy to offer a seat to someone, you just get up and you walk away. Yeah. Like you can be shy, but you can still distract. Absolutely. You don't have to be my six foot six white brother <laughs> in order to intervene. But for so long, people had a limited view of bystander intervention that they thought, I don't want to get into a fight today. They thought you had to be the hero. Yeah. And that you have to have this big presence that's like you swept in and saved everybody. And that's terrifying to like 90% of the population. So distract is a really great way that you can think on your feet. You can be creative. And frankly, it's entirely possible that by the end of it, no one even knew you were intervening. You were just asking an innocent question or offering someone your seat. Oh, I love that stealth element. Oh, yeah, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> so what comes after distract? So then we have delegate. That is when you delegate to someone else to intervene, either because you are scared to intervene on your own, or frankly, you don't know how to intervene. So if you see someone being harassed on the back of a train, you might legit have no idea how you're supposed to help that person. So you could go up to the driver and say, hey, there's this guy making this woman real uncomfortable at the back of the train. Can you do something? You can contact the security guard at the mall, the flight attendant, the manager at the store, whoever it is that's in charge, kind of putting it to them and saying, hey, something's going on. 
You can also delegate to another bystander. And this is really, really important for when people say, okay, well, what happens if I'm with my kids when I see this happen? Or I got an armful of groceries. Or maybe you use a mobility scooter to get around and you can't physically intervene and help someone, but you want to. Or, you know, something that we hear a lot, which is like, it sounds selfish, but maybe you're in a rush. Like you've got to get off this bus and run to your appointment that you absolutely cannot miss. You can still turn to someone else and say, hey, do you see that? Like, I got my kids with me or I'm in a rush, but like, can you check in on them? Can you see what's going on? So delegate is really, really important because again, it can give you opportunities if you intervening directly feels too dangerous. Mm -hmm. But the reason why we're very careful about our five Ds and the ways in which we talk about them is that for a lot of privileged people, especially white people, they hear delegate and they translate that to call the cops. And so it's really, really important for me to drive home that that is not what we mean that there are many, many, many things that we can do at a community level that do not require police intervention. But more than that, that we remember what our job is as bystanders. And our job as a bystander is to create a safety bubble between ourselves and the person being targeted. And for too many people in our communities, a police presence is inherently unsafe. And so you're not actually doing that person a solid, you're actually putting them at further risk. And so I always tell people, if you see something and you think this is really dangerous, we have to get outside help, inform the target that you are calling police. If you overhear that someone has called police, announce it so that the person being targeted knows that the police are on mm-hmm. their way and they can decide what it is that they want to do. Checking mm-hmm. in with someone and saying, do you want me to call the police? Even just yelling that out to someone gives them the ability to say, Nope, (laughs) if that's what they need. Because again, my job is to protect you. It's not to sweep in and look like the hero. Mm -hmm. And it gives them the option of leaving if that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And so is delegating as simple as looking to the person next to you and saying, are you seeing this? Yeah. The best way to to flip the bystander effect is to do something. And that something can literally be, hey, does anyone else see this? Literally just saying that out loud confirms for people, yeah, okay, there is something sketchy going on. Okay, I do have a role to play. It's like it builds in a level of accountability to each other, like all the other bystanders there. What comes after delegate? So we have document. So again, document on its surface is kind of similar to delegate, pretty straightforward, which is when you document what happened, whether it's through a photograph or a video, it could also be writing down a license plate number or a description of the person. So that's kind of what it is on its surface. But again, that nuance, that intersectionality is really, really important. So we want to be trauma-informed as well. The goal with document is not to capture footage that you're then going to start streaming live. It is not to capture footage that you're then going to post on social media. Even if your intent is good, even if your intent is awareness raising, you are a witness to a traumatic event happening to someone else. So the purpose of document is to create documentation, evidence basically, that you're going to put in the hands of the target for them Mm -hmm. to decide what they want to do with it. So that if they decide they want to report You've just made it a heck of a lot easier for them to do so because it's not just their story. You have evidence in some way. If they want to post it on social media and say, you know, this is my experience, you've emboldened them to do so because there's concrete evidence. So just to say that there's a lot of concern sometimes around filming in public spaces. So Mm -hmm. being aware that if you're filming a 
crime in progress, basically, <laughs> that you are protected in that sense in Canada. I can't speak for other countries. Similarly, here in Ottawa, where I'm based, you technically cannot film on public transit because we are the nation's capital and it's a bomb threat, etc. But in partnership with our public transit authority, I was able to lobby them to say, you know what, there are certain circumstances where we need to be able to record what's happening because you don't have cameras on all the buses and trains. And so we have that agreement as well. Wow. Congratulations, Julie. Oh, thank you. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So if that's your fear of like, oh, if I film this, like, am I going to get in trouble? Don't let that hold you back. Yeah. Again, you're not posting this on YouTube, right? You're literally approaching the person to say, oh my God, I just saw what happened. I'm so sorry. I have a video or I have a picture of the person. Can I just text this to you, DM it to you? Like, how can I get this in your hands? You decide mm -hmm. when and if you want to do something with that. You're really empowering them to say, here's all the tools you need. You decide what happens next. That is so nuanced. And I learned from you the last time we talked that really all of the five Ds are about thinking about the person who is being targeted, directing all your energy towards protecting the victim rather than the person who was doing the bad act. But, you know, that brings me to, are we at our fifth D yet? We said distract, delegate, document. Now we have two left. So there's delay okay. and then direct. So delay is a really great tool for a few reasons. So the, what delay is, is really just delaying until the moment has passed and then checking in with the person being targeted. That's kind of the simple way to think of it. But I find mm -hmm. it really effective in two circumstances. So one, especially in public, where sometimes it's very fleeting. It's like a car drives by and yells an obscenity at someone. And then the moments pass and you think, well, I can't chase after that car. So I guess there's nothing I can do. You can absolutely go up to the person that was the target of those obscenities and saying, oh my God, I saw that. Like, are you okay? What is wrong with mm. people? Like just really confirming for that person that they didn't imagine it, that they're not exaggerating, that someone saw it and cares and delay is also really, really great for people who are the most marginalized. So when I work with young women, for example, I really recommend delay because it means you're not in the fray when it's happening, if it feels extra scary for you, but you're still connecting with another human being to say, I see you and what happened to you is not your fault. So don't be embarrassed. Don't be humiliated. Don't beat yourself up about it because it wasn't on you at all. And research shows that when people get confirmation that what happened to them was not okay, it literally changes where that experience sits in their brain. It reduces the level of trauma that that person experiences dramatically. Hmm. And it's why sexual assault survivors have the highest rates of post-traumatic stress disorder in the world, because our pain hmm. is not recognized. And so we sort of fall into these, oh, I coulda, shoulda, woulda, and we beat ourselves up. And that's what makes us really traumatized by the experience. But if something happens to you and right away, a complete stranger is like, no, 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 that's not on you. Who raised that man? I don't know, but it's not your problem, right? That <laughs> makes you think like, yeah, you're right. That's not my problem. And I'm less mm -hmm. likely to be sort of stuck in that place of feeling frozen. So delaying is going up to someone and it could be just letting them vent and saying, hey, I saw what happened. Are you okay? But it could also be practical. It could be, hey, do you want to come sit with me and my friends? Do you want me to walk with you somewhere? Do you want to borrow my phone? Do you want me to wait here while you call someone? Like really just sort of saying, look, I couldn't stop what happened, but I'm here and I see you. And what does it look like for me to care for you in this moment? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. 
until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, earlier you had mentioned the phrase trauma informed. And so I do love that you bring up that this seemingly simple act can affect someone's brain reaction to the trauma. That's so important because I want people listening to know that if all they do is say, wow, I saw that. That was messed up. Are you okay? And that's the entirety of the exchange. If the person says, oh, I'm, I'm fine, and you part ways, you've still done something that has a measurable effect on that person's life. Absolutely. And also part of being trauma-informed is recognizing that survivors are bystanders. I'm a survivor. I've been sexually assaulted. I've experienced intimate partner violence. And I can still be an effective bystander, even if what I'm seeing is maybe triggering for me, feels extra scary because I've been there. I can still check in on someone. I can still be like, hey, been there. It sucks. What can I do to help? I find delay is a really beautiful way in which we can take care of people while also taking care of ourselves. I find that to be so beautiful as well, because on every level, there's a way for people to tag into what has been witnessed collectively. So let's talk about the last D then, which is direct. Mm -hmm. Direct is what I would say most people think is the only form of intervention, and that is direct confrontation with the harasser. So things like, hey, she said no, leave her alone. Hey, leave him alone, stop following him, whatever that looks like. So yes, people can intervene directly, but it's really important that they do it in a very particular way or else it can absolutely lead to escalation. And so what you want to do if you want to intervene directly is first and foremost, do that gut check. Ask yourself, do I feel safe to get into a confrontation with a complete stranger? If it's late at night, you're in a neighborhood you don't know, you're alone, you're just tired after a long day of work, you're not feeling 100% then I wouldn't recommend intervening directly because it can take a lot of energy. Secondly, it's a two-part process. So what you want to do first and foremost is you want to be direct with the harasser in saying, she said no, leave her alone. And then turn towards the person being targeted and check in with them. That is the part that is the most important and the part that most people don't do. Hmm. It's important to remember, by definition, this person is doing something unreasonable. So your capacity to reason with them is extremely limited. And when you're talking about a stranger interaction, there's little to no evidence to back up the fact that you'll actually convince this person or teach them a lesson. It's a pretty right. futile effort. And so what you want to do is really set a limit with the harasser and then turn right away towards the target, asking them what they need to be able to get out of that situation safely. So 
being mindful of what is my goal here. It's bubble of safety. And so if you end up in a back and forth with the harasser where he argues, I was just being nice. What are you, her boyfriend? And then you feel the need to defend yourself. And then it turns into this back and forth where that poor woman is sort of shrinking in her seat and thinking, why did you even come over here? You just made it a thousand times worse. That's what we want to avoid. Mm -hmm. And we avoid that by just boom, boom, using statements. We're not asking questions of harassers. We're not threatening them. We're also not using sarcasm or jokes because, again, we don't want to make it seem like this is banter between two people, especially with sexual harassment. A lot of harassers will fall on this. Oh, it's just cute flirting. It's just Hmm. banter. So you really want to have declarative sentences that are like, leave her alone or we're going to call security even if you're not going to, <laughs> and then turning towards the the target and really checking in with them to get them out of that situation. That's how you can intervene directly. Mm-hmm. Now, I love these tools because, and you said this to me last time, it's like you can't just raise awareness forever. You have to help people figure out the next step. And you have done that and now you teach it. So I wonder, are there ways in which you have adapted the five Ds of bystander intervention so that they can work for the online world? And I ask that because our online lives are our real lives. Yeah. And the kind of abuse that you face on Twitter, like that is real abuse. But I still have no clue about what to do or how to deal with that kind of online abuse that I see on Twitter. So are there ways that we can use the five Ds? Yeah, absolutely. So keeping in mind, first and foremost, that trolls can find out what high school I went to, my phone number, my address, all kinds of things about me, but allies won't even send me a DM. So sit with that, right? Like trolls will use every means necessary to try to get to their target. So allies can do the bare minimum and just check in on someone that they see being targeted. If you don't feel comfortable speaking about it publicly on your main timeline, for example, slide into that person's DMs, send them an email. I cannot emphasize enough how powerful and important it is when you're receiving hundreds and hundreds of death threats and threats against your life and threats against your family to have the occasional person saying, hey girl, I see you and this is really messed up and I'm so sorry. And I know they're loud, but you have a lot of support. People reaching out, you might feel like, I don't know this person, what difference does it make? But it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So that's some version of delay. Document, really helpful. Like if you see someone being doxxed, which is when someone's private information is posted, screen grab that, report that tweet, report that to Facebook, report it to Instagram. Like taking screen grabs is really important because oftentimes what these accounts will do is the second they get reported, they'll delete it and then they card another account. And so you kind of lose it. But Taking a screen grab is very tedious, but someone Mm -hmm. else seeing that tweet and reporting it, really helpful. You're not identifying yourself as an ally. You're not bringing trolls to your profile. You're just quietly sitting there and taking, you know, an hour out of your day to just report some nasty tweets to try to help someone else out. The other thing is if you want to be direct, the people who are being targeted for harassment, remember, untag the person in question. Oh my God, I cannot emphasize this enough. The amount of times people will come to my Twitter profile and be like, leave her alone. And it's like, babe, I love what you're doing, but you keep me tagged (laughs) in it. So now I hop on Twitter Mm -hmm. and my mentions are full of you people fighting back and forth about me under the guise of helping me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So untag me and go fight them in another corner. Like if you want to troll the troll and waste their time, you go right ahead. But 
direct them somewhere away from me instead of actually bringing more traffic towards me. Don't tag the person in a post that you're making about them, for example. Different ways in which you can, again, show your support without actually making the situation worse for the person. Yeah. Think about you as a real human being and whether you want to be there for that conversation. Yeah. I cannot emphasize enough how much of a difference it makes when I receive a supportive email, a supportive message, especially when I'm experiencing like like a real deluge of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of threats. The times in my life where the harassment was particularly acute, and I'm thinking of one incident where I got 450,000 death threats on Twitter. Are you kidding me? Full stop. And the reason why I know specifically is because when you have a tweet go viral and you're verified, Twitter reaches out to you to say like, congratulations. And I was like, no. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think what was the most depressing is that from what I could ascertain from people who were boldly emailing me with their full names and addresses and their work emails and what have you, overwhelmingly teenage boys, young American teenage boys who sent me the most vile things at like two in the morning on a Tuesday. And I thought, that's somebody's son. <laughs> like, why are we not talking about how this is a 16 year old boy from Missouri sending me a six paragraph email about how I should kill myself. Like it's this level of severity that, like you said, it's so annoying when in 2022 people are like, well, what happens online isn't real, especially mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Like our entire lives are online. <laughs> yes. And you know, when you tell that story about 16 year old boys, it makes me want to cry because I have a son who's on the doorstep of becoming like a teenager, right? He's not yeah. there yet, but and it makes me so sad because that 16-year-old in Missouri who emails you a death threat has been instructed in some way on how to do that. The culture has shown him that he can do that with impunity. It's just tragic. And this is why I want to talk about feminism more with my son than my daughter. Like, I'm just always thinking that, you know? Yeah. My daughter's just going to be trailing behind. Like, <laughs> she's going to be learning by living life, I feel. So, you know, my yeah. son needs those very explicit lessons on what you do and don't do as a young man growing up in this world, you know? And I don't care what your friends are doing. And I'm just so sorry that you experienced that. Thanks. And I think also just like, that's not how you disagree with someone. Yeah. If that was a man who had said that, would your instinct be, let's kill them? Maybe. And let's talk about that. But like, even just when you disagree with someone and you feel passionately, how can you articulate that? Also, like the parasocial relationship that you have with celebrities, especially athletes. Like every time I've called out an athlete is when I get the most vile nonsense. And it's always like, what does that say? And like the irony that I had to stop doing promotion for my book about stalking because I was being so brutally stalked and harassed and threatened. I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life. Like it was just so meta to say, Ooh, sorry, I can't promote your book right now because you need to go underground. But yet the idea was like, oh, 16 year old boys are just being obnoxious. That's what they do. Oh my God, Julie, that's just so terrible. I, yeah. I'm glad that you bring up your book. Your book is called Resilience is Futile. The Life and Death and Life of Julie S. Lalonde. What do you mean by resilience is futile? Resilience is held up as what we want to people to do, which is to just keep getting back up. But the reality is, is oftentimes your capacity to keep getting back up is used to erase your pain. And so we prefer to focus on resilience and grit than tearing down the structures that force us to fight so hard in the first place. 
And so in my case, because I was seen as exactly this person who was, you know, taking hit after hit from trolls, took on my public transit authority, people saw me as this like fearless person. Meanwhile, for 10 years, I was being stalked by an ex-partner and I lived in absolute fear constantly. And when he died very suddenly a few years ago, I basically came out about my story publicly and people were dismayed because the story was horrific, but also because they couldn't reconcile who they saw as a very powerful person with someone who also lived in fear. And so there was this idea that like, okay, well, either it wasn't that bad because you seem to be doing okay, or you exaggerated or one of these things is false. Like my resilience was used against me. And as someone who's worked with thousands of survivors throughout my career, I see that every time they go to trial where they have to show that they are traumatized enough for their pain to be taken seriously. But if they're too vulnerable, if they fall apart too much, if they're too messy, that is used to say, well, how can we even believe this person? You're uncredible. You're a mess. But if you're too stoic and if you're too resilient, then no one cares about your pain. And so the title of my book is like purposely a bit provocative because I just Mm -hmm. really want us to think about, especially in the context of gender-based violence, like I always hear, what's your message to young women? What's your message to young women? And I prefer to pivot to exactly what you said, which is like, let's talk about my message to young men. Let's talk about my message to school systems, to the mental health system, to police who aren't taking this seriously. Like people were really uncomfortable with my book when it came out because they were very much thinking like, what, you're just telling women to give up? There's no hope. Don't even bother. And it's like, no, but it's not you bootstrapping that's going to make a difference. It's you being pissed off and challenging the system to do better because I am a very resilient person, but it did not protect me. And it glorifies suffering. And I really want us to think about why we still glorify suffering and act like it builds character when we know that survivors of violence are the most likely to be perpetrators themselves. <laughs> like, how do you make sense of that mm-hmm. then, right? All of that complexity, I think we need to sit with. But most people just want a very black and white conversation. So I'm in the business of muddying the waters, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you really are. And you are so good at opening the door to those more complex conversations. And your story also, like throughout our conversation, you've been talking a little bit about how some of these institutions like police and the legal system do not serve survivors. And you come by that knowledge very honestly through your lived experience. And this is also what I love about your tools of the five Ds is that it's based in community. And it really gives people a sense of not only, hey, I can do something, but my community is good. Yeah. And also just important for folks to know that like even survivors who do report to police, that's not the first conversation they have. They're talking to their friends, their family members, their colleagues, their classmates. So even when the police do have a role to play, it's not the first call that people are making. So it's still important, even in those circumstances, for us all to be educated on how to hear those stories, how to hold space for those conversations, because survivors need validation from their community in order to feel emboldened to keep talking about it. We all benefit from just having those skills and really thinking of the five Ds and other things as life tools that you just carry in a toolbox that you hope you never need. Like, I don't want to ever have to use these things but I'm glad I know them. (laughs) Absolutely. That's how I feel about your tools too. Thank you so much, Julie, for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to At the End of the Day. 
If you like what you've heard, please share the podcast with a friend or give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for more information on gender-based violence, we have links in the show notes. And you can visit the website for the Canadian Women's Foundation at canadianwomen.org. If you want to make a donation to a women's shelter, look one up in your community. In Toronto, two that I can suggest are Sistering at sistering.org and Andayan, which provides emergency shelter and transitional housing in Toronto to Indigenous women and their children fleeing violence. Find them at anduhyaun.org. If you're in crisis in Ontario, you can call Assaulted Women's Helpline 24-7 at one 866 8630511 or awhl.org. This episode was produced by Olivia Trono, Francis Kim, and me, Hannah Sung. Theme music for this show is a song called Commentators, written by Jeremy Singer and performed by Hank. At the end of the day is brought to you by a team including newsletter editor Laura Hensley. And if you are contributing to the Patreon for this show, thank you for bringing this show to life. That includes Melissa, Sonia, Tori, Ming, Nadine, Cheryl, Heather, Lana, Anne, and Chobi. You're amazing for supporting our small but mighty team. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find our Patreon link and newsletter at endoftheday.ca. This podcast is part of the Media Girlfriends Network, and you can find us at MediaGirlfriends.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.